Hi, welcome to Nutra Champion, a podcast series where we speak with experts specializing in nutrition research, including scientists, doctors, and policy makers. Here, we will find out more about their research journey, their career, and even some personal life lessons. I'm Ting Ming, the editor of Nutra Ingredients Asia and your host for this podcast. You can listen to our past episodes on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. In this, in this episode, I'm very honoured to be joined by Dr. Anura Kapat, the Professor of Physiology and Nutrition at St. John's Medical College based in Bengaluru, India. A doctor by profession, he previously headed the Department of Physiology at the college and is also the founding dean of St. John's Research Institute, a position that he held for nearly a decade. Specialising in the areas of malnutrition, proteins, amino acids, nutrition, metabolic diseases, and food fortification policy research, he has published nearly 500 scientific papers and seats on the editorial board of several nutrition journals, including the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, the Asia-Pacific Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and Encyclopedia of Human Nutrition. Hi, Dr. Anura. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. So I understand that you co-chairs the Indian Council of Medical Research Expert Committee, which is responsible for making recommendations on the nutrient requirements of Indians. And this time round, the committee has made recommendations based on the estimated average requirements, known as EAR, on top of the recommended daily allowance, known as RDA. And this is the value that has been used traditionally. And we know that eventually the Food Safety and Standards Authority of India, FSSAI, has decided to go ahead with using the RDA framework and published RDA 2020 and published the document RDA 2020 last year. But can you tell us more about the work behind the report on the nutrient requirements of Indians and why did the committee also make recommendations based on the EAR framework? Sure. The big change that was made in this report was that we switched from using the term RDA, which is recommended dietary allowance or recommended daily allowance. We switched from recommending that to a new term called the average requirement. The other equivalent of that is the estimated average requirement or EAR. The difference is this that if you look at the distribution of normal intakes in a, or normal requirements in a population, you'll find that they follow a bell-shaped curve or a slightly skewed curve, which uh, you can normalize into a bell-shaped curve. If you take the midpoint of that curve, that's the average requirement of the population. The RDA is the right-hand extreme value of this curve, that is the 97.5 percentile of this curve. It is a value that is very high. And when you use that value, you can be overnourishing people. And sometimes that value for some nutrients can be quite close to the upper limit of intake. For example, with iron or with vitamin A, both these there tends, there tends to be a very small distance between the RDA and the upper limit of intake at which 
point you require you you assume that there is a risk of some toxicity to occur you don't want that and certainly for a population you don't want that so what we do is we change from the rda to the ear and this ear by the way is also the recommended intake value that is used by the institute of medicine or the iom now called nasm and it's also used by efsa or the european food uh, regulator so it's not as if it's something new this has been a thought that has been there that the rda overestimates the requirement and so we have gone for the ear another reason we actually did not want to go with the ea with the rda is that for many nutrients in india we don't have full data on the requirements and so what we do is we construct a framework for each nutrient in which we say well a nutrient requirement is dependent on how much is lost every day it is also dependent on the bioavailability of the from the foods that are eaten every day and the variability of all this so you multiply each of these up to get to a requirement we call this the factorial method of determining the requirement yeah yes so i'm wondering if you could share with our audience what exactly was the reason in the first place that had set the changes um from rda to eaa was there any like cases of toxicity or any nutrition problems that that's why you decided to change it yeah so one of the things that was troubling us was that when we looked at the intake of iron in this country and we tried to relate it to anemia prevalence rates it did not seem like there was any relationship it looked like those who had very high apparent iron intakes or those who had lower intakes they all had high anemia this was very puzzling for us and then when we actually looked at taking the the recall of diet either through household or through individual recalls and then actually looking at the total iron intake per day and then looking at the distribution of those intakes it seemed very likely that if we were to push people to a mean uh, intake that was at the rda a significant proportion of them would cross over into a toxic zone now there is no doubt that when people take iron tablets that they will experience some amount of gastritis and that is what we call a toxic effect however we also were interested in understanding what iron could do to many other things through its prooxidative nature and we began to find that if you looked at the nhains data for example and there are many papers on this that if you looked at people who were in the highest quintile of serum ferritin they seem to have a much higher risk of developing diabetes so there's a there's a relationship between iron and serum ferritin which is a biomarker for iron and having too much iron in your system is also a bad thing there was also reports coming out from africa where people had looked at the changes in the microbiome of children who were eating fortified foods and it seemed quite clear that a lot of pathogenic bacteria were beginning to appear in the microbiome of these children because iron is something that uh, uh, many bacteria don't like is particularly the beneficial ones like lactobacilli 
and bifidobacteria, whereas the, the enteropathogenic E. coli and other ones tend to like it. So you're going to just shift your microbiome into that zone. So these are pointers to us to consider this. I see. And actually, when we talk about iron, right, uh, I read quite a number of research studies and reports which, which also say that uh, there is a high level of iron deficiency in India. So I guess, you know, in the past, a few, in the, in the past, uh, uh, RDA requirements for iron has not led to improvement in iron in the iron uh, absorption and level in, 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 in women. Is that the case? The RDA policy has not really improved the iron levels in women either. Now, if you look at the deficiency of intake, is the, uh, is the diet iron deficient? If you look at the EAR as a requirement, the diet is not iron deficient. In fact, because Indians eat so much of cereals, rice or wheat and each of these contains about three milligrams per hundred grams and if therefore if a person were to eat say 300 grams of cereal by the way people can eat 300 grams of rice per day that seems like a lot but believe me in india that might be about the median value but 300 grams means you already got nine grams milligrams of iron in the intake plus in the other green leafy vegetables and other things, you will get extra iron. It's not difficult to make it up to five to 15 milligrams per day. It becomes difficult when it's 20 or even earlier when India thought that the iron requirement daily was 30 milligrams per day. This led everyone to think, oh gosh, the Indian diet is so bad, it can't. Well, I'll tell you, it's very hard for any diet to meet 30 milligrams per day. You'd have to be eating a lot of meat and possibly a very blood-rich diet, because that's the way you get that iron. It's very hard to get it from a plant-based diet, that much at least. The second was that our diets were pretty inhibitory, and that is to say, a lot of cereals means lots of phytate, and lots of phytate means you don't absorb the iron that well. So that also was a problem. So what we are trying to tell people is, listen, there's enough iron density in your diet. What you do need to do is to eat some fruit along with their diet because fruits contain vitamin C and that improves the bioavailability. And second, please don't drink tea when you, when you have your meal because tea contains polyphenols, which absolutely shut down iron absorption. You really don't want tea alongside the meal. And unfortunately, culturally, many people have a drink of tea or coffee after the meal, milk, for example, yogurt, now, yogurt contains a lot of calcium, so does milk. Calcium will fight with iron for absorption. Tea contains polyphenols. Coffee contains polyphenols. Chocolate contains polyphenols. So you can see that there's a lot of things that you eat culturally that can actually stop iron being absorbed effectively. What's good is if you can wait for a couple of hours after your meal and then have this good stuff. No problem, but not immediately with it because you are going to reduce. So I think a little education will help. But there's no need really to say, oh my God, you need to add more and more iron into your diet because we have to push it in because you're not pulling it in through absorption. Let's push it. The truth is you can give more and more iron, but if you have a drink of tea with it, one cup of tea, black tea, you'll destroy the absorption of all that extra iron. So there's little point in doing that unless you actually change the absorption. So I want to stay with that, that firstly, 
our suspicions were because we we really wanted to recalculate the way in which iron was required in india based on this factorial method of daily losses menstrual losses other losses bioavailability blah 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 we put them all together redid it in a very transparent way it's available in that document you can look at it and it's very clear there's no reason to doubt that the requirement is lower than it was before so when you have a lower requirement the chance of deficiency goes down and you're right the old rda that was there which you thought would push people to eat more iron never worked never worked nobody changed their diet to eat more iron rich food because the truth is what would you eat you'd probably have to eat a lot of green leafy vegetables a lot of iron rich millets but the truth is all of them they they're not full of iron they don't taste of metal when you eat them you know it's not like eating liver where you can actually taste a metallic taste here you won't it's not that, it's not loaded with iron so keeping the rda that high your question is absolutely right it did nothing to actually make people eat more iron rich foods at all but the problem is that india seems to have a huge amount of anemia and people think that at least half that anemia or more is because of iron deficiency now this is wrong on many levels india's high rates of anemia may not be true and i'll tell you why one reason is that india surveys its anemia by using a finger prick method they 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 go around to the population take uh, the middle finger take a little lancet make a small poke and then take a drop of blood and put it into some kind of point of care device method which immediately reads off what the hemoglobin is now i have personally tested this and this is published in the new in the annals of the new york academy of sciences where we actually tested this on a thousand women in one state in in northern india and we these very cooperative women women gave us not only a finger prick sample of blood they simultaneously allowed us to take a, a sample of blood from their elbow vein so we were able to put a needle into their veins get a venous sample at the same time get a capillary sample and then we analyzed both these bloods on the spot by the same point of care device and guess what the venous blood sample hemoglobin was 1 gram per deciliter higher than the sample hemoglobin from capillary blood that so immediately in that group of 1000 women by the capillary method we were getting a prevalence of anemia of about 60% but when we used the venous sample on those women it came down to half that 30% and that tells you something you know that eventually whatever metric you use for anemia it's very important that you use the right thing it's convenient to go and take a capillary sample of blood because it hardly requires any training so you can sort of quickly do it but the truth is you can overdiagnose a problem and particularly with anemia we think that's important there's another reason why we think that anemia is being overdiagnosed you know if you ask yourself how do people diagnose anemia well they are told by the who take a blood sample measure the hemoglobin and if it's below a certain cutoff 
then that person is anemic. So for a woman, the cutoff is 12 grams per deciliter. If it's below 12, well, the woman is anemic. If it's well below 12, she's severely anemic. That's all. But that's the cutoff. Now, where did WHO get this cutoff from? They got it from data that was collected on Western populations in Europe and in America or Canada, I think, where they actually went out and looked for people who they thought were normal in every way. So find this beautiful normal population, take their blood and then measure their hemoglobin. And then you'll find not all of them have the same hemoglobin. They'll also have a distribution of values, plot them as a frequency, and you'll get another bell-shaped curve of distribution of hemoglobin. Take the left lowest point on that, and that becomes your cutoff for, for saying anyone below that has anemia. Now, unfortunately, this exercise has never been done in Asia, as far as I know. And so it was time we did it. So there was a very large national survey done in India on children. It was called the Comprehensive National Nutrition Survey, which measured about 125,000 children across India. Now, it measured several parameters in their blood. So what we did was we actually selected out, based on all those other parameters of nutritional status, we selected out what were the healthiest children. We selected out the richest children. We selected out those children who weren't stunted, who weren't wasted. We made sure they looked normal in every way. So they were normal looking, they were rich, and they had no micronutrient deficiency. So we got down to about 9,000 children from that 125,000. It really came down because you're selecting so, so, so very rigorously. And when we did the bell-shaped curve and we looked at the lowest 2.5th percentile value as a cutoff, it was much lower than what the WHO suggests. And we actually have now published this in the Lancet, in the Lancet Global Health, it's, it's a paper, and the WHO is considering uh, how it can change the, the HB cutoff points, because it, it does look that in Asians, it might be that the HB cutoff value is lower than what the WHO suggests for white people in Western countries. Already in, in, in Western countries, it's clear that black people have a lower cutoff than white people. And it seems that Asians fall into the same thing. And so there are several reasons to think that anemia might be overdiagnosed in, in this country. And for us to keep saying that, oh my God, there's 60% anemia, it's all due to iron deficiency, is not correct. Because iron deficiency, per se, is not that high as well. In fact, you'll find that iron deficiency is higher in urban communities rather than rural communities in India. That's opposite. You'd expect rural, poorer communities to have more iron deficiency. So very clearly, the iron content of the diet is there. I think the key is it has to be absorbed, and once absorbed, it must be converted into hemoglobin by a variety of other nutrients, which are called maturation nutrients, like vitamin B12, folic acid, um, copper, vitamin A, proteins. All these are important for the formation of hemoglobin. 
Now, if you have all of them in abundance, you shouldn't have any problem converting iron into hemoglobin in its origins. It, it yeah. is it isn't a single thing. Sorry, I've taken too long. Back no, 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 it's okay. I, I think it's very interesting to, you know, hear a very fresh perspective on how uh, anemia could be overdiagnosed in, in India. I think this is, this might be something that a lot of people might not be aware of in the first place. Yes. And, and besides uh, the decrease in uh, iron in terms of the EAR, I guess there's, I, I also read that there's also some other uh, nutrients in which the EAR has increased. So um, what are some of these examples and what's the rationale for increasing them? So one important one is vitamin B12. Earlier, the requirement in India was one microgram per day. But one of the things I've been doing is examining how well B12 is absorbed. Now, unfortunately, if you wanted to go out there and ask can I measure B12 absorption? The answer is going to be no, because unfortunately B12 absorption is measured by a radioactive test, a test that uses radioactive cobalamin, cyanocobalamin, which is vitamin B12, and you feed that to a person and measure how much of that radioactive uh, label gets absorbed. Okay, so because radioactivity is now banned in most places, you can't you'll never get approval to expose people to radioactivity. So it was, nobody was measuring B12 absorption. One of the things I've done in the, in the last two years is I managed to synthesize a cyanocobalamin molecule that was labeled not with a radioactive isotope, but with a stable isotope. Stable meaning it is it's a different atomic weight, but it emits no radioactivity. So it's completely safe. So if you can give it to a person, then you can track how much of that label gets into the bloodstream and figure out the absorption of vitamin B12. Now, I've done that and the molecule, I mean, yes, we've made it, we've published it, it's all done. But one of the things we found when we started looking at people in India was that they were absorbing B12 to about 50% of what they ate. And that, but that was very variable. There were some people who were absorbing 10%. There were some people who were absorbing 80%. So there's a very large range, but the middle value was about 50%. As a result, we increased the requirement to two micrograms per day from one. So that's an example based on data that was generated right here in my lab in India and relevant to Indian people was that, yes, you have to increase your B12 intake. That's a really difficult thing to do in a society that eats plant-based foods because B12 is an animal food, is an animal, is something found in animal foods. It's not found in plants. So as a result, if you're vegan and you refuse to eat anything that comes out of an animal, then you're at risk for getting B12 deficiency. So uh, in India, many people are not vegan, but vegetarian. What that means is they drink milk. Milk does contain B12, but for the amounts that I'm saying that people need to have, you need about 400 to 500 ml of milk, half a liter per day. Now that could be as yogurt and milk and milkshakes, you name it. 
But at the end of the day, that's expensive also. For a poor society, it's difficult. So there's no doubt that animal foods are very important. Eggs contain it. Meat, no problem. And if you eat liver, liver is the very rich source of B12. So such people don't have any problems. But those who are trying to increase their plant food intake will have to think about how they keep their B12 intake going. So that has an impact. So that's one of the examples I wanted to give you for where the EAR increased over the former. Yeah, okay. And um, on this note, right, I'm wondering what are your thoughts about food fortification policies in India? So you were saying like vitamin B12, uh, there is a need to increase the intake. So uh, let's say if some some people, they are not, uh, you know, they are vegan or they don't really drink milk, will food fortification uh, help to in improve their intake? What, what do you think of this? So food fortification works for those who are exactly like you said, vegans. Then yes, fortifying their cereals or some, some food that they have with B12 is a good idea. Alternatively, they have to take pills. That's what they should be doing anyway. Now, what's my view on fortification? I think, as I said, it's a great way to improve the nutrient, specific nutrient intakes in specific people. I am not at all sure that it is a good way to increase the nutrient intake of the entire population. Now that's what India is trying to do. What they're trying to do is to use public funding, which is taxpayer money, to actually fortify either cereals like wheat or rice or another staple like salt with iron. And that would be then distributed through various food safety baskets, which are paid for again by public funds to poor people. In doing so, and I remember I told you this, that I don't know if you consider in your country, how much rice would people eat per day? I mean, in India, as I said, there are some places where people eat about 150 grams of rice per day, some places where they're eating 450 grams of rice per day. And remember, Rice, when cooked, becomes three times that weight. So in effect, there are some communities where over a kilo of rice is eaten per day by each person, per adult. All right? Oh, now that's, that's really a, a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, you may ask me, how sure are you of this data? I don't know. These are secondary analyses that I've done of national data sets. But the, along the eastern seaboard of India, it looks like rice eating is much more. So here's your problem. You want to fortify rice. You have to, you, have to, you have to make many assumptions. How much rice are people eating per day? That's variable. Now you take a single value. Then you say, all right, if someone's eating so much rice and the deficiency of iron, then I need to put X milligrams of iron into one kilo of rice. So I need to set as a regulator, I need to set the fortification standard because manufacturers will need to know that they have to fortify the rice to X milligrams per kilogram of rice. That, if it was eaten at, say, 300 grams per day, would deliver, say, 10 milligrams of iron. So it's a complex calculation. It's not something that you take lightheartedly. 
And here's the problem that unfortunately you have to use that single value for a population that has a very, very dry syntake. It may be too much iron for somebody who's eating 450 grams per day. It may be too little for someone who eats 100 grams per day. So what are you going to achieve? So I think fortification to me has to be done with some sense. It should not allow anyone to eat, to have too much iron. It should not increase iron toxicity, as you call it, or risk of excess intake. So the problem for me is that setting the fortification, there are many problems for me. One, what is your target? How much iron do you want to deliver per day? If you're going to fortify a staple, do you know how much staple is eaten per day? Because you, you need to know two facts. One, how much iron you're going to give per day and in how much staple. And it does not go to those who don't need it. This requires a great deal of administrative skill and implementation skill. And really, all you need to do is to create methods to absorb iron better. Don't increase the density. On the other hand, may I know what are some of the other key research projects that you are working on at the moment? Yeah, for sure. So we're continuing with the B12 work, obviously. Now that we have the probe or the tool by which you measure, we're actually characterizing it in a lot of people and trying to understand the genetic mutations and the polymorphisms that could alter this absorption. And there are about 40 uh, candidate polymorphisms already that we have identified that could alter B12 absorption. The other problem is that B12, you know, uh, we always think that it could, its absorption could be decreased when people have gastritis or helicobacter pylori infections. Well, that's true. But you know, one of the reasons why people go into B12 deficiency in India, for sure, is that they, they, many of people in India, as you may know, are diabetic. And one of the frontline drugs for diabetes is metformin. It's a biguanide which reduces blood sugar. Now, metformin actually reduces the absorption of B12. And I mean, for the first time, we'll be actually showing how much metformin reduces B12 absorption. More importantly, it appears that calcium can reverse this inhibition. So I've got a couple of medical students who are doing this research on diabetics to understand how much metformin reduces their absorption and whether or not they can reverse that through uh, calcium, either as milk or as a calcium tablet. I mean, these are possibilities. Um, we are also looking at vitamin A. Uh, I'm very interested in measuring vitamin A status because you know that vitamin A is one of the big uh, problematic nutrients in public health. And India has a program of giving what we call a mega dose of vitamin A twice a year to children below five years. And um, the question, just like hemoglobin, uh, one of the things I've been very interested in is to understand how one diagnoses vitamin A deficiency. Much like how I told you one diagnoses anemia, you diagnose vitamin A deficiency, sorry, not vitamin B, vitamin A deficiency, you diagnose it by looking at the level of a biomarker in the blood. For anemia, you looked at hemoglobin. For vitamin A, you look at what is called serum retinol. Retinol is a form of vitamin A. Now, 
There's a cutoff, again, suggested by the WHO for anyone with a value below that is deficient. But, you know, again, all these me measurements were made not in Asia. They were made in South America or in America. And I'm not sure that's the same population. Indeed, the WHO has, has also said in one of its documents that it's very important for countries in Asia to look at its own rich elite populations who don't have deficiencies. Look at them and then define your own cutoffs. So that's something that I'm very interested in doing. But because I can actually relate these cutoffs to the level of vitamin A stores in the body, because I can look at isotopes. I, I give a stable isotope labeled vitamin A to the person, and I can actually measure the amount of vitamin A that's present in their bodies. And in doing so, I can actually figure out are they really deficient or not, and relate that to the serum retinol level, which is the cutoff that WHO is using. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing that research as well right now. Uh, and it's quite interesting because it seems like those cutoff values are also quite high and maybe we need a slightly lower value. This is the problem with nutrition, that earlier public health nutrition was driven by looking for clinical deficiencies in the population. You went out, you looked for children who had nutritional blindness. You looked for children and women with big swellings in their neck called goiters. You looked for physical problems, clinical problems. But as life has gone on and the world has gotten better, clinical problems have disappeared. Now the strategy is prevention of those clinical problems. And you can't prevent a clinical problem just by looking at clinical signs and symptoms because they aren't there. So you shift your focus to a biomarker. And based on that biomarker, you begin to say, aha, this population requires this or doesn't require this and so on. But the question still is, did you, did you do some research in your own country to define that biomarker and its cutoff? And one more important thing that I do is actually looking at protein. I'm, I cut my teeth on energy and protein uh, nutrition. I'm very interested in, in energy requirements and in protein requirements. And in fact, the WHO requirements of amino acids for adults is based on research that was in my lab. It's probably one of the few WHO recommendations that is based on Asian research because it was all that was the entire primary data for the recommendations for amino acid requirements came from my lab over here. Now I'm actually working to inform the FAO through its own databases on how well proteins are digested. We all know that you know, meat is very well digested, milk is very well digested. These are high quality protein sources. But what about plant eating populations? I mean, we know that legumes have a lot of protein, but are they well digested? Nobody knew up to now, because the only way you could know it was to actually measure nitrogen balances. If you could give somebody a bowl of garbanzo beans, of which the nitrogen you knew, and then you collected their feces for some time, you knew how much nitrogen went in and you knew how much nitrogen comes out and then you can work out how much disappeared, which means it was absorbed. That's the most crude way to do things. You can't get cruder than that. And it gives you very wrong results. 
So I again have been using stable isotopes. And here I use heavy water. Heavy water is water which hydrogen is replaced by deuterium. Deuterium is a stable isotope. So I go out and at the agricultural college here with a collaborator there, I grow rice, wheat, uh, millets, pulses, all you name it. I grow them, but I water them with heavy water. In doing so, the plant takes up that heavy water and the proteins get labeled with deuterium. Now, if I harvest the grain and then process it and feed it to people, I can actually track how much of that label got absorbed. And here's the surprise that milk, meat, eggs are all well absorbed. Spirulina or an algal protein is sort of in between. What's badly absorbed are pulses because only you, you would only digest about 60 to 70% of the pulse protein that you eat. Isn't that a surprise? Because you would prescribe to a person, ah, you, you need X amount of proteins per day. And if you are eating pulses, eat X grams of pulses per day. How do you come to that X grams of pulses? Because you know the protein content in the pulse. What you don't know is how much of that protein would actually get absorbed. And if it's only 60 to 70%, you have to tell the person, well, you better eat a little more pulse because you're not going to digest and absorb all of it. I think plant-based protein, there has been a lot of talk about it, uh, especially when it comes to um, you know meat alternatives. I am wondering, how else do you think protein and amino acids can be put into novel nutritional products? instead of just, you know, acting as a form of meat-free option? Um, so let me put it this way, that I actually measured the bioavailability and digestion of pulse protein, particularly chickpea or yellow pea in this case, by extruding it. I don't know if you know about extrusion as a food processing method. Extrusion smashes up the plant food into a very tiny paste and extrudes it through a very small hole. In doing so, what I found was that we got a ready-to-eat chickpea or yellow pea paste, and its digestibility was fantastic. It literally, from 60%, it went up to 90%. It changed the whole thing. The problem for me is that a lot of this sort of processing the taste of that protein is not that great. You need to really disguise it. And one of the problems I have is that the disguising of these highly processed foods is either with sugar or salt. And so you end up, for all the benefits you're chasing, with a processed plant food diet is lost. You, when you could have just eaten those plant foods as they were and eaten a little more of it and it will probably make you more satisfied. But instead of that, you chase, you want a burger that is made of plant protein, when really you could eat a bowl of, of peas or, or legumes, and I'd be pretty happy. I'm not sure how the rest of the world would see it. But if that burger contains so much salt, is it worth it? I really think that there's a hidden side to, to these kind of fake protein of fake animal foods.
the moment you start messing with food to try and make it a different shape or a different this or that you will find that its taste is not as great as you thought and i am all for raw foods or minimally cooked foods but ultra processed please i would say avoid it so my answer to your question on what do i say about plant foods from the protein viewpoint yes ultra processing it will make it more bioavailable the problem as i see it is that you're probably going to eat a lot more salt while you eat that food so you have to weigh the benefits of do you really want to be a hypertensive or not and on the other hand right uh, as you know you you sit on the editorial board of several clinical uh, scientific journals so i'm wondering if you can share some of the key pointers that editors are looking out for when evaluating uh, scientific papers and also maybe one one recent example of a scientific paper that has left a very deep impression on you because it's very outstanding ah for sure what you want is innovation and moving the field forward what you want is new thoughts and you want rigorous testing of those thoughts so there's no point saying i've got brilliant thoughts but i don't have an experiment to prove it you have to have that uh, empirical approach to science so that's one thing that editors do look for um and many times you get uh, particularly from asia sometimes you get papers that sort of say well this was found in in the west but we no one's tested this in asia so we repeated that experiment now typically such papers don't get the airing that they would they would want because they are seen to be repetitive they are not novel they don't move the field forward but nevertheless i do see that a lot in asian papers that are submitted uh, that's not to blame them is just to say that you know um, sometimes ideas need to be tested but it's likely that you'll publish it in a local journal rather than an international uh, journal which paper did i think really blew me away hmm well one was a very nice paper that came out on a trial by i think it was ludwig in boston he's another one of the editors of the american journal of clinical nutrition in which he 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 spoke up for us moving away from the traditional energy balance approach to uh, obesity to what he calls the carbohydrate insulin response model in which one tries to try and keep your insulin levels lower by eating a lower carbohydrate diet and uh, in doing so uh, allowing for uh, the mobilization of fats uh, from your body stores because insulin is a terrible hormone that way in the sense that it it will not allow you to mobilize fats from your fat stores it will promote fats to be laid down uh, it it literally is, is is thinking oh you've just eaten your food let's store your food so the moment your insulin is high it's very hard to burn off things so that's why people do intermittent fasting and this other way of actually reducing calories uh reducing your carbohydrate intake to very low levels does reduce your insulin as well and it does actually help in maintaining weight loss so that's something that is a useful thing as asia gets fatter and fatter and because asia eats a lot of cereals it may be a good idea to look at this kind of research over here as well but again 
I, I don't. I, I mean, look, when one is poor, one eats what one can. It's only, you know, the problem in Asia for me is this: that people are beginning to get metabolically sick, even when they are thin. They don't have to become fat and obese to actually have a metabolic problem like diabetes. They're beginning to show it on a narrow, on a on a normal frame, and that's even more scary because we we traditionally re, we traditionally rely on the BMI or the body mass index as a guide for us to say you're healthy or you're not healthy or you're at risk or not at risk. But what if the BMI is no longer that guide or that signpost? You're going to be you you will need blood tests all the time. And then the question becomes: If you're already thin, you can't ask somebody to get even thinner. You can't ask them to lose weight. You have to have different strategies. So I think that kind of research is very important. I I do not know whether this occurs in all of Asia, but certainly in South Asia, it is a problem. I see. Yeah. Thank you for this very in, important insights. I think this will be very helpful to the researchers as well. So on the other hand, right, I'm wondering if you can share how did your journey into nutrition research uh, begin? You know, as because you started with a medical background and completing your medical degree. So how, how did the journey in in this nutrition re research uh, started in the first place? Well, it started because as a medical student, I wanted to do some research and I, I went to the Department of Physiology in St. John's. I studied here in the same college and the professor there was was measuring the effect of dietary fiber on intestinal health. And so I got involved in that as a medical student. And then, you know, we published a couple of papers and then it just it bites you. You just say, wow, I, I think this is a nice thing to do. And at that time, there was a lot of construction going on in India. And when I used to go to the construction sites, as medical students, we had to visit those sites. You found pretty thin people, but they were doing a lot of work. And we looked at the lunch that they ate. It was the most basic of lunches. It would be perhaps, you know, a bit of rice with a very small amount of, of some curry with it. And you just wondered how on earth are they working so hard? when they eat so little. And so I got fascinated by the idea of adaptation, which is something that every clinical person is interested in because literally every patient adapts to their own condition. Those who don't adapt well enough do badly. Those who adapt do well. So this was something that interested me and I began to think about adaptation. And then as I continued in my training, I started looking at adaptations particularly to energy balance um, in India, especially in those workers that we're talking about. And I began to look at a variety of different experiments to understand how they conserved energy because they didn't seem to be eating that much to me. But clearly, it became very obvious to us that their adaptation was a mechanical muscular adaptation. They were very efficient in doing the work they did. If you and I tried to lift the weights they lifted and walk a distance, we had probably collapse after two rounds, but they were able to actually do it very, very, just at a regular pace, not trying to hurry it up, but they would just do it time after time after time. And so it was more a muscular memory and adaptation. 
but it wasn't a metabolic adaptation because I measured their BMR and other things. But then what happened was that uh, India began to uh, get very interested in stable isotopes. And at that point in time, there was a request for applications for the use of stable isotopes in health. And so I had read about how stable isotopes could be used and mass spectrometers were becoming available on a bench top, much smaller mass spectrometers. So it became, it all came together for me to put up grants to try and measure these things. And of course, I went off on postdoctoral uh, fellowships to the UK and to America, where I learned much more about the isotopic methods and the different skills that were required. And then when I came back, I set that all up here. And so that was my journey. Okay, wow. I'm wondering, can you share your hopes for India's nutrition policies? And, you know, even maybe new research or product innovation that you hope to see from the industry? The problem is one size fits all. And we need to move away. My dream is that we move away from that kind of thinking and move into what is called precision. In medicine, there's a thing called precision medicine. There's now something called precision nutrition. And I'm asking, can there be precision public health nutrition? Because if we can get precision into that, it'll, it'll really work. It, it means that industry has a smaller role to play, but it has a role. The question is, what's the profit industry wants? And unfortunately, profits come with scalability. And here there is not that scalability. So there is that problem. And it is always going to be that tension that's there. I don't deny that food industry has made great research steps. I mean, the fortification research is brilliant, the way they're fortifying foods. But it needs to reach the right people. How do you do that? Bring that precision in, and I'm a happy man. Thank you very much for your time to share your wonderful insights on this area. I'm sure our audience had a great time listening to your insights and also learning from your experience as well. Thank you again, Dr. Anura. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Neutral Champion on Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. You can also head to neutralingredients-asia.com for more content and news on the nutrition industry.